Well, good evening again. Thanks for, that's a long passage. Uh, let me recap it real quick before we even go any further. Uh, there's two things that are happening here, all across Hebrews 3 and 4. The first part is telling the story of the Israelites and the ways that they didn't take God up on his promise to give them a place to settle where he would care for them. And then the second half is saying, what if we didn't do that because we now see the truth fully because of Jesus, so let's walk into that promise, okay? So that's kind of the gist of it. One other thing that I want to mention as we're getting going is um, I mentioned the past two weeks that Hebrews is actually a sermon. So the people who encountered Hebrews uh, originally, they would have heard all of these stories together because they weren't breaking it up the way that we are. Right, So uh, the way that they're thinking of it is, wow, this is just story after story after story. And it, the whole gist of it is, is this our story or is this our story? Like the, the one about God's people in history and now? Or is our story something different? That's kind of the way that we've been when looking at this. So have that in mind as we look into Hebrews 3 and 4. Uh, we... Being uh, Reformed people or Presbyterians, those are theological names for Presbyterian people, which doesn't include all of you, but it includes me, uh, and I'm pretty sure it includes Jonah. I feel confident about that. Uh, we believe that once someone becomes united with Christ, uh, nothing can take that away, especially in including their own foolish choices, uh, even in belief. Okay, that's an important distinction. I have this vivid memory from Divinity School. I was sitting on the bus, uh, and I was reading this article by scholar Scott McKnight. And it was on these passages from Hebrews called the warning passages. There's five of these. This is one of them. We looked at one last week. And what I loved about the way that McKnight categorized these is, is the charity that he showed every viewpoint, uh, even as he disagreed with my own. It, it's easy to reduce these passages to, uh, to fodder, or just fodder for debate, or sport. Um, something to debate. What do we think's going on here? Uh, and McKnight just does this great job, and that's why I remember this so viscerally, of, of reminding us that ultimately these passages are not puzzles that we're trying to figure out. They're about people. You know, they're about faith, uh, the faith of people, and, and the possible demise of people. Uh, and so they're really important pastoral words. They're not just theological uh, problems to try to figure out. So last week we saw the first of five warning passages, and this week we have the second one. And there's different ways that folks interpret these passages. Um, Presbyterians, of which I count myself, are known for theological precision. But also people fairly criticize uh, Presbyterians for trying to preserve their whole system at the cost of reckoning with difficult passages. And this is one that actually kind of rubs up against some of uh, the views of Presbyterians. Because we say that people can't lose their faith. Once they believe, they can't lose their faith. And this passage seems like it might be saying something different. Uh, these passages, these warning passages, are essentially saying, watch out. Don't lose your faith. And there's these other phrases like, don't let your hearts be hardened, and don't go astray. And, and here's what I think these are saying, and uh, I want to give it a more sophisticated uh, treatment than just saying uh, that, yeah, the people who fall away just never believed. 
Uh, I do think that these passages are in line with what, what I believe, which is that once someone knows Christ, they will never lose that. And I think that's something we can reconcile with these passages. Uh, I think it can be two types of people that this is talking about. Either one. Uh, it can be someone who's enjoyed a sense of the love of God because they've been around a good church. And being amongst a good church, they felt love. And, uh, but they were never really united to Christ. And over time, they kind of rec- recognized that those are two separate things. Or... And I actually think this is more what the passage has in mind. Some folks have been united to Christ, but they've neglected that union or grown bitter toward it. It's like a tough marriage. You know, there may be bitterness in the spouse's heart, and they're not cultivating the relationship, but they're still united. And, of course, that metaphor fails at at a certain point because a marriage can end. But it is important to remember that Christ remains united always to those whom his spirit dwells in, despite our unwillingness to enjoy the gifts of his presence. Uh, so I think this passage has these two types of people in mind. Those who felt love in the church, they felt something there, but they, they never actually believed. And then there's those who did believe, and the spirit dwells in them, but they've allowed their hearts to become so bitter and hardened that they... Uh, that until they repent of that, they can't taste or enjoy the fruits of faith. And I think this chapter, like I was saying, is especially focused on the latter. Uh, this rebellion, this, this going astray is real. It can be committed by people. We've all probably seen that. Uh, people fall away. And I think it's important to note that those people aren't liars. Uh, I think sometimes when you have a friend who walks away, you just feel like you wonder, man, were they just deceiving me? And, and it's important to have compassion and say, no, like, I think they just really didn't know what they believed. Um, for those who, who did believe, uh, that who really had the spirit within them, uh, they're united to Christ. But for those folks, they've allowed themselves to be so hardened that they, they can't even sense what's going on in their own soul. So those are the two you know, groups of people, and I, I want to approach those with some charity. But I want to stop real quick, because uh, I think it's important for everyone here. I guarantee you, I know some of you right now are thinking, man, that's me, and I haven't told anyone. Like, I really don't know if I believe, and it's kind of scary. Uh, I just want to hit the brakes and say, uh, don't despair. Don't despair. Okay? I, w- I want you to hear that there is assurance. If you want to believe in Christ, he wants to give you that faith. Uh, but we can't but experience doubt in our age. Uh, there's a philosopher, I quote him all the time, his name is Charles Taylor. And he has this quote, he says, Why was it virtually impossible to not believe in God, say in 1500, in our Western society, while in 2000 many of us find this is not only easy to doubt God's belief, but it's almost inescapable. So let's acknowledge that our thought life and our society are coming out of a couple hundred years of creating new political forms. We've had an explosion of scientific understanding 
and technological advancement. And the reason that's important is that we don't want to discount those things. That, that is progress. Those, those are progress. But they have led to an overestimation of human rationality. You know, we're, we're still groping for that resting place between having this new technology, new scientific understandings, uh, new forms of government, while still accepting that uh, there are things that we don't know. There are spiritual mysteries that we cannot understand that are transcendent and mysterious. We have technological advancements, but we don't know how to steward them well. You know that if you have a spouse who looks at their phone too much, like my wife, referring to her spouse, okay, to be clear. Her spouse looks at his phone too much. Um, We understand the mind and biology, I mean, so much more than any other time in human history. And yet, look at, look at mental health in our society. We've never understood the mind better. We've never understood biochemistry better. And yet, mental health struggles are just, it's, a, it's an epidemic. You know, we understand ecology better, and yet uh, we're really struggling to figure out how to be good stewards of the earth. This is a very unstable moment to be a human. And that makes faith compelling, right? But it also makes it very challenging. So I do want you to hear that uh, for any of you who scramble for assurance, and some of you do, I read it in your prayer requests, okay? Be assured that you are saved in Christ if you're writing that down on a prayer request. You may fail consistently in your efforts to follow and enjoy Christ, but John says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he's given me, but should raise them up on the last day. And he promises that when we ask, he will give. Whenever that passage gets preached on, people are always telling you what it's not about. It's not about you getting a Ferrari, okay? Jesus doesn't want to give you a Ferrari. How many times have you heard something like that? He, but it says, ask and you will receive. What is it talking about? Faith. If you ask for faith, he wants to give it to you. Uh, you know, I have a friend, uh, a number of friends who I've talked to, who said that they, they want to follow Christ, but, but they just can't because they don't think Christianity is for the intelligent. And I think that's because uh, we're so conditioned to think that we're rational creatures that it's hard for us uh, to admit that there are things that are uh, spiritual mysteries. And so when we encounter them, we either, uh, we either run away from that or we just say, well, that's not actually a mystery. It's explained by science or something like this uh, with an explanation that's really not necessarily proven. And I think when we rely on our rationality too much, we choke whatever nourishment the Spirit's trying to give us from within. Uh, 
And then I've said this the past couple weeks that the problem here is not that we need to change our effort. Okay, if we're, if we're dealing with that reliance on rationality, the answer is not, you better step it up. You better step up your Christian walk. You better up your spiritual effort. Uh, it's, it's actually just that we need to acknowledge where we're at. What, what's, what is our story? You know, we're probably telling ourselves a false story, but the reality is uh, we're, we're irrational creatures who have a sense of rationality when we work together, you know? And when we can acknowledge our circumstances of who we are as creatures and who God is as the creator, then, then we can start to work through this stuff. So, so I keep saying that it's, it's not changing our effort, it's changing our story, okay? So what's wrong with our story? I think there's, there's two things wrong with our story. Uh, first, the human capacity for lying to ourselves, it's amazing, right? And we all know this because when we look around, you can see all these other people telling themselves these crazy stories. We don't do it, you know, but they do, all of them out there. If you own a business that has a Yelp account and you read someone write a review about your business, you're like, people are crazy, okay? We write these really outrageous, self-justifying narratives in our head. And then the second thing that's wrong with us is that we, with our stories, is that we, we don't understand the promises that God makes us and how we might have a life hidden, uh, hidden in, in Him. In Hebrews 1, we talked about how Hebrews layers all these references to history uh, throughout this, this sermon. There's allusions to the Psalms. There's allusions to the Old Testament history. And these are, these are all helping the preacher call the congregation into the story of God's people and away from their delusions. And that's the first three, four chapters of Hebrews. It's just saying, stop with your delusion that's in your head and start living into the story of God. And the first story that Hebrews alludes to is the very beginning, the very beginning of everything, creation. In the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the vast and formless void, shaping it into mountains and rivers and oceans, prairies, populating these creations with birds and fish and land and creatures and humans. And it was perfect. And Hebrews 1 tells us the Son of God, who came later as a human to earth, was actually there at the beginning. So Hebrews reminds us first that this is the true story of the world. God made this glorious garden flush with friendship and food and vocation. But humans tore that down with selfishness and small thinking. So God made it, but we broke it, right? And he has a right to be upset that we destroyed his beautiful project. Uh, and there's so many stories in the Old Testament where we see people do that time and time again, where they're just trying God's patience or, or dismissing his invitations, which is what we're going to get into today. Uh, especially in, uh, in chapter 3. So chapter 3 in verses 7 through 11, it's actually quoting Psalm 95. But it goes even deeper because Psalm 95 is a song that's about a story from the book of Numbers. Okay, So Hebrews is alluding to Psalm 95 
which is, which is alluding to numbers, okay? And the way I thought that I could drive this home to y'all is this would be like if Ben Milner referenced a Saturday Night Live sketch that was about Harry Potter, okay? <laughs> Notice all these phrases like the hardening of your heart or rebellion or testing. These are referring, those little, those words are codes that are referring back to, to numbers. It's not God testing his people as it might look. Uh, it's, that, it's that the people are testing God. But these are, these are people who are being rebellious and in their delusion, they're daring to test God. So let me just tell you this story from Numbers, okay? That the Hebrews author is assuming you know and you'd be like, oh yeah. When you hear hardening and rebellion, you're like, ah, oh. Numbers 13. Of course, they wouldn't say that because they were speaking Hebrew. But uh, start way back with Abraham, okay? Uh, God tells Abraham to leave his homeland and promises, them, promises him that he's going to give them, his family, a place to settle. And it's going to be a good place. So Abraham has children. They have children. So many children. It ends up a nation. That nation becomes enslaved by Egypt. God rescues them out of Egypt. They wander in the wilderness. In the meantime, God's with them the whole time. He's literally feeding them. And uh, they worship other gods. They start to grumble. And then they start to fight with each other. And Moses, his brother and sister, who were kind of part of his leadership council in Israel, start criticizing him. So the infight is getting so bad that even the leadership, who is a family are fighting with each other. And that's in Numbers 12. And they're, they're grumbling, Miriam and Aaron, and, and God sees them in a tent. He says, get out of here. What are you doing? Why are you arguing with each other? And it, it's a mess, okay? Right after that, God says to Moses, it's, it's time to go to the promised land. So they go to this place called the Wilderness of Paran. They're right at the border of Canaan. Pause there, okay? You have that story in your head? Let's go back to Hebrews for a second. The first chapter of Hebrews, like I just said, it's, it's, uh, it's all these stories, it's all these references to prophets, and it zooms out over Israel's history and God's faithfulness, and then it zooms out even further, okay? It's quoting these psalms that talk about all of the cosmos and that God made it. And then, in chapter 2, the focus goes from this really, really wide angle, and it goes right down, focused to our little tiny sphere, about how God and the person of Jesus just plunged below the angels and gave up all of his privileges just to, just to live like us. And if you were there hearing this sermon, you're thinking of all these stories, and they're, they're all in a row. And that's just, isn't that just mind-blowing and exciting to think about? Think about how big the universe is and to reaffirm the fact that God is above all of those galaxies and planets and stars. And yet, uh, he also sends these prophets to speak tough truths to little humans. And then he goes so far as to sacrifice his enormous estate, which is the cosmos, to come and just walk along the earth with his creatures. And then when we get to chapter 3, the preacher says, 
that Moses was part of that grand project. He was an important part, but he's just part. He's just part. God's the one that builds the house, and Moses is just part of it. That's what the beginning of Hebrews 3 that we didn't read says. So we get all these things in our head, the story of Moses, Genesis 1, Psalm 8, the Exodus, the wandering of Israel. All these stories are in mind for this congregation. They just heard all of these echoes in rapid succession, one after another. And you think, how can we forget about God when you hear all of that in a row, his goodness and his power and his creativity? And then we arrive at Psalm 95. Where God says, do not harden your hearts like the rebellion, the testing in the wilderness. And they, you think, we would never do that because we're remembering all the good stuff. We would never do that. And God's saying, well, that, it was that rebellion after I was faithful generation after generation. For those 40 years where you were testing me, I was faithful. And then let's go back to numbers. Here's what happened in the rest of that story, okay? The Israelites, after generations of slavery and wandering, are rescued by God and they're fed by him the whole time. And now they've arrived at the edge of the promised land that he promised them. And it's a place called the Wilderness of Paran, as I said, but just outside Canaan. Moses sends scouts to see what it's like, and it turns out it's awesome. They return with these stories of abundant milk and honey, uh, they bring some grapes and figs and pomegranates back to taste. And my suspicion is that they tasted great because Caleb, one of the scouts, shouts out, let's go get this land. Okay? Quick footnote. I don't want to gloss over the fact that uh, there are there's serious issues with like dislocation and violence uh, on the people in Canaan. Uh, to get the promised land. So I want to acknowledge that, okay? That's, a, that's something we have to wrestle with when we read those stories, but it's not for today. So I just wanted to note that. Okay, so remember, they are not guessing whether or not God wants them to do this. He has been promising this since Abraham. And he's gone so far as to tell Moses exactly where they should explore. Okay, so Moses knew, telling the scouts, go to these particular places and this is what you're going to find. There's no room for doubt here. They go in and they, they, they come back with these reports of fertile lands and milk and honey and the taste of rich fruits on their tongues and the promises that God's going to give them victory. And this is how they respond. No way. I'm not going to go in there. Those people are big. It's good. That's going to be too difficult. Why did you even bring us here, Moses? They start rebelling against Moses. You know, they forget that it wasn't Moses, it was God. You know, telling them, like, being, like feeding them with food from the sky. And they start getting mad at Moses. You know, forget that, that they found this promising land of milk and honey. They can't see these things. Instead, they're saying to Moses, you know, Moses, if you would have just let us die in Egypt, we wouldn't be out here in this, in this big, dumb promised land with these big people. It's, their, their response is insane. It's insane. And to fast forward to the Hebrews, you know, whatever way we interpret these warning passages, whether they're about people who do believe or, or people who uh, 
never really believe but claim to believe, uh, it's important to note that it's about us. You know, it's just it, it's it's here because it's about the people of God in a congregation. So when we read books like Hebrews or James, uh, they have all these phrases that say things like "watch out" or "hang on" or "do not neglect," and it's kind of like they're grasping you with both shoulders and looking you in the eye and saying, stop, examine your story. Because this is what humans do. We are all like the Israelites. We would rather take the lesser temporary thing that we know than trust God's promises. We tell ourselves crazy stories. And when scripture says that things like that we we shouldn't chase money, that we should feed the hungry, that we should keep our oaths. These prompts are not telling us, you better shape up. You better start doing that stuff. What they're saying, what they're asking is, do these feel natural to you? Does it feel natural? Do do poor people annoy you? Are you cynical when you encounter them? Do you think that if you just made a little bit more money, things would be a little bit easier? You know, and that's when we have to start asking Hmm, is our story different than God's story? Because these are parts of God's story. And they're not saying you better do these because we're not. We're going to mess them up. It's just asking, does, does your heart at least want to be a part of that? A friend of mine has this great expression that's from another Bible story. He says, you want to be like Esau? You know, I don't care what God offers me. I'm hungry. Give me that soup. You know, and he's asking, do you want to trade all that God offers you for a bowl of soup? Because that's what we do. It's a reference to Esau, Jacob and Esau. Esau, after a long day of hunting, decided to give his inheritance to his brother in exchange for a stew. That's the actual word, a stew, from the family kitchen. I can't think of anything I would trade for a stew. Okay? But Esau, Esau took the soup. The Israel, I can't, think of, I can't think of why I would want to go back to a place that enslaved me. But that's what the Israelites did. And it made me think of this hymn, In the Hours. We sing it here sometimes. There are snares all around us. Pride, ambition, love of ease, mammon with her false allurements. Words that flatter, smiles that please. I like to say, you've probably heard me say this before, I bring it up a lot, that all of pastoral ministry can be summed up by one quote from Tobias Pinke. <laughs> if you don't know who Tobias Pinke is, he's a therapist on the TV show Arrested Development. And he's estranged from his wife, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And he says to her, you know, Lindsay, as a therapist, I've advised a number of couples to explore an open relationship where the couple remains emotionally committed but free to explore extramarital encounters. And she leans in and says, well, did it work for these people? And he says, no, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but, but it could work for us. <laughs> I, I just, I assure you, whatever you are going through, good or bad, okay, you are probably telling yourself a crazy story. Uh, and you probably also 
whether subconsciously or consciously, won't share that story with anyone who might interrogate it. You know, we strive towards things that we know are not fulfilling. We tell ourselves that, this, that, that it could work for us. You know, sure, your friends bought a new house because they were unhappy with their circumstances, and that move almost caused them to divorce, but maybe, you know, maybe if we got a new house, if we changed houses, it might fix things for us. You know? Or, sure, you saw a friend put career over community, thinking that that job change would up her lifestyle satisfaction. And the pay was better, but she lost all of her friends in free time. Maybe if I got a new job, it would be easier and they would pay me more. You know, I'm plenty guilty of this. I actually have a tattoo right here. It's a question mark. And the reason I have that is it's to remind me of Proverbs 16, which says, All a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the motives. You know, we can see uh, that other people are discontent and disheveled, and then they think, oh, I've got a great solution, and you watch them, and you just think, why do you think that's going to work? Why do you think anything other than just a life in Christ is going to work? But we end up using the same jigs they do. So what story are you telling yourself? If the house is clean, then I'll find peace. If people need me, I'll have significance. If I can get some wage growth, or Another degree, I'll be satisfied. If my feelings are validated, then I'll be happy. Maybe you love moralism. You have such rigid morals that you judge other people and yourself. Or maybe instead of stories of entitlement and legalism, you just try to escape through workaholism or taking on lots of commitments or just going into debt trying to find fun all the time. What in your life in your heart of hearts, not your, not your mind. Your mind says, I love Jesus. But, but what in your heart do you really long for? What are you thirsty for? You know, think about your home or your job or your relationships or your church. You know, do you muse about them being perfected in some way, a little bit better, a little bit different? You know, there are stories that you have constructed in your head, and I just guarantee you that sometimes you are choosing soup. It says in Hebrews 3.11 that that God was angry. And people don't love the idea of God being angry, and I don't either when it's out of context. The idea of an arbitrarily angry God uh, can seem like an abusive father, and I get that. Try this as an analogy, if you, if you want to try to understand what's going on when it says that God is angry. Have you ever had your car rummaged through, or, or worse, your home broken into? It's, uh, it's unsettling, and, uh, and it makes you angry, because it just feels like that shouldn't happen. Uh, when God gave Adam and Eve the garden, he didn't just tell them you know, arbitrarily don't gain knowledge of good and evil. He wanted them to gain that knowledge. He just wanted them to gain that knowledge through obedience to him rather than pursuing autonomy by eating the fruit. He crafted paradise for them and they corrupted it 
he offers a, an inheritance, a land of milk and honey, and we ask for things that oppress us. We want the oppression that we know instead of the freedom that he offers. Hence, he is upset. Because we impose our will on his project, and that's upsetting. So in Psalm 95 and in the book of Numbers, we see that God didn't allow some of those people to enter his rest. And rest here is just an expression for, me, for, for a settlement where everything is provided. He didn't allow them, some of them, to enter the promised land. Some of them died. Moses was left at the border, not allowed to enter, but able to see it. Uh, I'm not convinced that, that uh, not entering his rest is akin to eternal punishment. Uh, I wonder if Ishmael and Esau and the rebellious generation are with the Lord. But they always have to live with the fact that they deprived themselves of enjoying those momentary pleasures of his presence in this life. I think that's true of some of these people. And the reason I think that is because look at Peter. Peter is with Jesus all the time. In, in some of the most extraordinary stories, like when Jesus walks on water or the transfiguration. And at one point, he's, Peter says, you know, Jesus, I have an idea. What if you didn't go to the cross? What if you didn't die? And yet, when Jesus is resurrected, he comes to that guy and he says, Peter, will you feed my sheep? Thomas refuses to believe the resurrected Jesus is really him. And he, he won't give up until he puts his finger in Christ's wounds. And then he says, my Lord, my God. And Jesus welcomes him. The prodigal son trades the presence and the provision of his dad for excesses of food and drink and clothes and lust. I mean, that guy, he's an American, okay? He did not enter the rest of his dad's homestead. He missed out on a lot of it. He still missed out on a lot of it. As did some of the Israelites. But the prodigal son is still welcomed home, covered in a rope, fed by his father, and he does still enjoy his father's uh, estate. We are always walking back to Egypt. That's just what we do. We're always letting thorns grow around our hearts. If you were here last week, you remember that Hebrews 2 says we have a trailblazer, a pioneer that goes ahead of us. He goes before us being pricked, and cut so that we go through unscathed, so that we can run home. When we feast on the Lord's Supper, we are tasting his rest. We're getting the chance to go back on the path with Christ, back in the story of a life in God. Think about right now what kind of crazy stories you're telling yourself. And take this chance to get back on the path with Christ back in the story of the life of God. Instead of wandering off in those stories, come to this table like the prodigal coming home, asking to be fed because he will feed you. When you ask, he will feed you.
He does let us enter his rest. And it's here at this table.